the ICC Imara podcast. Here at ICC Imara, we're all about connecting people to God and to each other, challenging believers to Christ-likeness, and changing the world. From wherever you're listening, we hope you'll be encouraged by this message. It's a joy to be back here in ICC Mara. What a wonderful time to be together with each one of you. I want to appreciate my very good friends, uh, Reverend Julius Wainaina and his wife, Marianne Wainaina, for this chance and moment to come and share God's word. It's been an amazing journey with uh, all the issues that have been going on around, but one thing for sure is true that the Lord Jesus remains the Lord of lords and the King of kings. In all things and in all ways, he has been with us, watched over us, walked with us, and we are so excited that we continue to hear God's word even in these moments. Last Sunday, Pastor Tony started us very well when he handled the topic, Staying Power in Adversity. He said, and I quote, We all wrestle with why would a good God allow bad things to happen to us? And when no answer is forthcoming, we then wrestle with how long that season of adversity will last. And for sure, we go through different adversarial situations in our lives. And when those moments come, there is a question that is related to what Pastor Tony started us off last Sunday. And that question is, why does so much good seem to happen to people who are unrighteous or people who don't even care about God, while the righteous people tend to face a lot of challenges in this life? How come the levels of proportionality of what people face are unequal? Why do nice people really suffer while those who do not care have it easy? It can be very disappointing, frustrating, and confusing When people do all the right things, they tick all the right boxes, and yet when the situations that come back to them are not all that they expected they would be seen. And if I may take our situation in Kenya, this Kenya is a classic example. The COVID billionaires are busy booking holidays and international schools for their children while the COVID victims themselves are in quarantine, sickly, and some have already died while the medical staff cannot access the equipment they need to take care of patients. This and many other situations that happen around our lives bring us to that point of asking, how come there are so many tough things and challenging moments that people who know God, people who follow God, tend to go through, and those who do not even care about God, and they are not even concerned about what is expected of them as far as the word of God is concerned, they seem to be having it all smooth flow along the way. Today, we will look at the topic, Right Attitude in Adversity. And we shall navigate this topic by digging into Psalm 73 on the adversity of, that followers of Christ go through 
Calvin said, and I quote, The ungodly for the most part triumph, and although they deliberately stir up God to anger and provoke his vengeance, yet from it sparing them, it seems as if they had nothing amiss in deriding him, and that they will never be called to account for it. Calvin continues to say that on the other hand, the righteous, pinched with poverty, oppressed with many troubles, harassed by multiplied wrongs and covered with shame and reproach, they groan and sigh. They groan and sigh. They grieve as they see the situation that they are dealing with. As per John, uh, writing on the same issue of adversity, says, curiously enough, this the 73rd Psalm that we'll be looking at right now in a moment corresponds in subject with the 37th. And it will help the memory of people to notice that these two Psalms seem to address the same challenge. The theme is a stumbling block, prosperity for the wicked men and the sorrows of the godly. Psalm 73 was written by Asaph and is classified as wisdom poetry. It has both a message of lamentation, a cry unto God, and it has a message of also a hope in God. Asaph is ascribed to have written 12 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. He was a Levite and a worship leader in the temple, as written in 1 Chronicles 15, 17, and 19, and 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. These facts are important for us to note. It is very key that we understand that Asaph was a worship leader. He was a Levite. And so when he is writing Psalm 73, and he raises the issues he raises in Psalm 73, it is not just somebody who doesn't know God. It's not somebody who is not connected with God. Uh, let me read what the Bible says about Asaph in 1 Chronicles 16, 4-7. The Bible says, Then David appointed some of the Levites, ministers before the ark of the Lord, to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah, and the Bible continues on to mention many other people who were involved in that uh, worship in the temple. Then in verse 7, Then on the day David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his followers. I read again. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his followers. We tend to imagine that only those who are yet to be properly saved or young in the faith or are yet to know God properly are struggle with such issues. We tend to imagine that if you knew the Lord enough, you would not be asking the kind of questions or the kind of a situation that Asaph describes in Psalm 73. We tend to imagine it's only people who have walked away and are yet to understand who God is can struggle. But I want to emphasize once again that Psalm 73 is written by a Levite, a worship leader. It is written by a man who knew God. It is written by a man who had worked with God, and yet at some point in his work with God, he faced some struggles. And I read Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my heat had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts 
comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations, they have no limits. Verse 8 says, They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take position of the earth. In verse 10, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, in verse 11, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? In in verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of the law of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute breast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What a beautiful psalm right there, Psalm 73, written by Asaph. Notably, this psalm is about the heart. The heart is mentioned six times in verses 1, 7, 13, 21, and 26. In the Israelite understanding, the heart was the center of the whole person, the desires, attitude, and thoughts. And when Asaph is writing about the heart and talks about the heart, it means that he's asking and talking and reflecting on issues that affect him as a whole person. The heart is mentioned here refers to all that the psalmist was going through as he reflected on life. Psalm 73 also has three contrasts mentioned in verses 2, 23, and 25. In verse 23, uh, the Bible, uh, the NIV uses the word yet. But the ESV, English Standard Version, brings the word nevertheless. And all those are meant to help us understand how does Asaph look at God, then look at his life, and then look at the people and the things that are going on around them and what are his reflections. Since the heart is mentioned six times in this psalm, then focusing on the right attitude in adversity is a befitting title. We regard the heart as a seat of emotions and the origin of our attitudes. By sorting our hearts, our attitudes get sorted. There are different ways of dividing Psalm 73, but for this sermon, I want to investigate this psalm in the following manner. Verse 1, God's goodness. 
Asaph starts by affirming that God is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. Psalms are beautifully written. They are musical. They are poetic. In fact, you can read that one verse, as surely God is good to those who are pure in heart, that Asaph is able to confess. And looking at the Lord, he can say, God is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. The goodness of the Lord is one of his attributes. He is good all the time. No matter what we go through, the goodness of the Lord does not fluctuate. The goodness of the Lord is not dependent on a situation. The goodness of the Lord is not dependent on what is happening in a, in a crisis. The goodness of the Lord does not even depend on what is happening when everything is going on well. God is good and God is good all the time. And that is our confession. And that is how Asaph opened this psalm by confessing that the Lord is good. The truth is that the Lord is good and that, that God is good to those who are pure in heart and they will enjoy the goodness of the Lord. But in verse 2, I go to the second point and I said, my first division is God's goodness. And then I look at point number two that we pick from this portion and I call I talk about external reflection. In verse 2, verse 2 brings out the first contrast with the conjunction, but. Because he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And, and, and Asaph is helping us understand here that he knows the, about the goodness of the Lord. He knows that one of the attributes of God is his goodness. He knows that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But then he says, but as for me, I know who God is. But then I looked at what is happening in the world. And as I looked at what is going on in the world, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Although he knows that God is good to those who are pure in heart, and presumably he was pure in heart, his feet had almost slipped as he envied the wicked. He had focused on how they lived their lives and concluded that life was just so good for them. Verses 4 to 12 describes the lives of the wicked people. Asaph explained the prosperity that troubled him. He observed that the wicked do not seem to suffer trouble as other people do. They cover themselves with pride and violence. I love the way he puts it, that they wear pride like a necklace. Their evil devices are unbounded. Their speech is scornful, malicious, and arrogant, as if they owned the earth. You can see them when they want to push you off the, off the road sometimes. Many people are carried away by their evil. Because they have the influence, they have the charisma, they seem to know what to tell the people, and they seem to know how to move the, the crowds. They have this presumptuous self-confidence. They think that God does not know their sin, and they actually behave as if they do not need God. With no chaos in the world, wicked, arrogant people continue to prosper. They seem to be in their own cocoon where they are trouble-free. They attract followers who willingly climb onto the bad wagon of their abundance, even if it involves subscribing also to their theology of an irrelevant God. And verse 7 in ESV captures my imagination because it says their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon, I quote from him, uh, talking about this verse 7, he says, Their wishes are gratified, and more, their very greedness is, ex is exceeded. 
They call for water, and the world gives them milk. They ask for hundreds, and thousands are lavished at their feet. This is a stark description of what happens in our hearts when we observe how those who do not follow Christ or those who do not care about God live their lives. And if I may pick a contextualized example, they seem to pay their rents on time. They don't seem to have any problems with their rents. They seem to have their businesses thriving. Their marriages survive. They, everything that they seem to be intending to do, they seem to achieve their intended purpose. Number three, I look at internal reflection in verses 13 to 14. As Asaph compared his life with the unbelievers, he felt like following God was in vain. Trouble surrounded him daily. It felt like walking in righteousness had no tangible benefits. And as the wicked prospered, he suffered immensely. Isn't this a usual feeling? Asaph describes our inner feelings in a very graphical manner. How many times do we feel as if God has changed us? How many married people feel like they're missing out by not sleeping out? How many young people feel like a call to purity is a call to missing all the fun? How many business people feel like sticking out to righteousness makes them miss great opportunities? And how many leaders feel like pursuing integrity is missing an opportunity to make it in life? Those are graphical examples. And these are tough questions that we deal with every single day of our lives. As we continue to unpack Psalm 73, I look at verses 15 to 20, where it talks about, it is about eternal perspective. In verse 15, Asaph says that for the sake of God's children, he kept the thoughts to himself. He considered that there would be more danger if he, as a spiritual leader, blotted out the turmoil in his heart. Remember in verse 1, as I said, he knew about God's goodness. It, it takes wisdom to know what to say, how to say, and whom to say. It, it takes empathy to watch your words for the sake of others. That even as you go through challenging moments, you always weigh, who can I be speaking to and what can I be saying so that it doesn't end up messing up other people's lives. The reality dawned on him when he focused on God. He understood that although the wicked looked that they were living in a little heaven down here, they were on a slippery path. Although they had everything, you know, that they needed in life, vanity is all that it ended up to. The vanity was in the possession minus God and not in the scarcity plus God. That when we have God as believers, it is not in vain that we hold on to the Lord. It is not in vain that we carry on from where he starts in verse 1 that God is good to those who are pure in heart. The biggest question is not whether we have more or we have less, but the condition of our heart in the light of intimacy with God. We unpack verse 21 to 27, and I, I label that part right attitude. Asaph described himself as grieved and embittered. His heart was not in the right place. He yearned for what he could, not, he could see to fulfill his appetite and forgot the Lord who completed him. In fact, he described himself, and I read, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. After the deep personal reflection, he acknowledged that God was always with him, shepherded him, guided him and with his counsel, and would eternally reward him. 
All the answers to his questions were found in God alone. That he started by God is good, then he reflects on what is going on in the world. He looks at himself, the issues that were going on in his heart, and he's coming to this conclusion that God is his shepherd. He is the one who gives him counsel, he's the one who guides him. In verse 25, he acknowledged that God was sufficient for him. He did not have as much as the wicked, but he had God. He had El Shaddai, God, El Jehovah, El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God. That even if he lacked in all the prosperity that he was seen being enjoyed by the wicked, he had one thing that was great for him, and that is he had God. All that he needed is found in him. And when we have all that we need, rather, is found in him. And when we have him, we have more than enough. It may not be in shillings and cents, plots and houses, or titles and positions. It may not be in guzzlers and flights. But one thing is true, that God is our strength. Verse 26 reminds me of an old song written by John Mowan, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my strength many times they fail. But there is one truth that will always prevail. God is the strength of my heart. The psalmist's heart had already failed him as we have looked at his external reflection. That God, but God was his portion. He had really what matters in life. Destruction awaited those who had no relationship with God. I love this verse because it describes our hearts in so many ways. My flesh and my heart, many times it fails me. My flesh and my heart many times fails to understand the place of God and how God works. My flesh and my heart many times, my flesh and my heart many times fails to appreciate that there is God who cares and there is God who knows and there is God who is concerned. When our hearts are pulled away towards envying and feeling jealous of the COVID billionaires, when our hearts are pulled towards envying the corrupt, the unfaithful, and the lawless, we have to remember that we have to trust God and not our feelings because our hearts will fail us. Our hearts will deceive us. Our hearts will make us feel as if we are losing it. But the truth of the matter is, as long as we have God with us, we have it, and that it is what matters in this life. When our hearts are embittered, we have to remember to look unto the Lord who is our portion forever. Our hearts lie to us that we suffer because we love God too much. Our hearts lie to us that a little compromise would not hurt. There are believers today who justify themselves with a statement, which of course it is not scriptural, that God helps those who help themselves, even when helping themselves is blatant stealing. We have to get to a point of it is not just about helping ourselves. It is about looking unto the Lord and asking the Lord to help us. It is asking the Lord to go ahead of us. It is asking the Lord to fight for us. It is asking the Lord to make a case for us. It is asking for us to sit for us in meetings where we don't sit. It is asking for us to stand for us and walk with us and shepherd us and counsel us and guide us in his ways. In verse 28, it brings back where he started about God's goodness. This verse brings Asaph to where he started. Verse 1 said, God, surely God is good to Israel. And verse 20 says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. 
Hallelujah. As for me, it is good to be near God. I love, I love the cyclic nature of this psalm. It starts with God's goodness, comes down to external reflection, to internal reflection, comes down to uh, eternal perspective, comes down to where, you know, the right attitude, and again completes the circle by the goodness of the Lord. He had, done, he had gone through a lot of course of emotions. He had analyzed, done his graphs and pie charts, as well as his findings and his deductions. But one thing remained. God is good and is good to his children. What are our takeaways from Psalm 73? Takeaway number one. Adversity pushes us to the reality of life. Crisis pushes us to the reality of life. We have to face the fact that those who do not know God might be doing well in this earth and those who, than those who know God. This does not mean that God endorses their lifestyles and is ignorant about our plight. And this does not mean that God does not care about us. So point number one, take away from Psalm 73, adversity pushes us to the reality of life. Point number two, adversity can make us question our faith. We have to admit that God is good, yet not everything we go through seems to be that good. I quote an article I found the other day by a lady called Leah Green. She says, if we are honest, we'll have to admit that we sometimes view God's nature through the lens of our circumstances rather than viewing us our, our circumstances through the lens of God's nature. When life is good, it is easy to believe God is good. But when life hurts, it can be harder to still view God as good. Point number three, take away from our Psalm 73, is that adversity forces us to define the meaning of success. We have to define what success means for us. Is it a close relationship with God or the amassing of material things? Is it meeting our greed or walking in righteousness? Mind you, the biggest question is not what you or I have or lack, but the biggest question always remains, how is our relationship with God? How is our relationship with the Creator? Point number four as a takeaway is that adversity reveals the state of our hearts. We get to know if we are ignorant, embittered, or envious when we see the wicked prosper. We get to know if we are willing to stick to the narrow and straight, even when the, the broad and wide is full of everything our flesh desires. Let me repeat that. We get to know if we are willing to stick to the narrow and straight, even when the broad and wide is full of everything our flesh desires. And our takeaway number five is that adversity is countered by the right attitude anchored in God. Our strength lies in acknowledging that when our hearts and flesh fail, God is our strength and our portion forever. He remains good no matter what we face. The eventual reward is eternal life, and we should not lose track of that. As we close and come to a point of prayer, I read again verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Today, Jehovah God, we confess that many times our hearts and our flesh fail. Many times, Lord, we look at what is going on in this life, and sometimes our hearts and our feelings, our emotions, tend to make us think or see and believe as if we have lost it by following your ways. Yet, God, you're good, and you're good to those who are pure in heart. You're good to your children. You care for your children, Lord. And you have set us on a path of victory, Lord, that even when we don't have all that we need in this life, your word is encouraging us that we have you, that you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever, that in heaven we only have you, and there is nothing in this earth, Lord, that can satisfy our hearts. There is nothing else, Lord God, no material thing, O oh Father, and I pray today, help us, God, to seek you. Help us, God, to run after you. Help us, God, to have the right attitude. Help us, God, even for those of us who are yet to know you, for those of us who have put our trust on the things that we have or we own, for those who have put our trust on the size and the shape of our accounts, or for those of us who put our trust on what we can tangibly see. Father, I pray this morning that draw our hearts to one place, that our greatest satisfaction is in you alone, that Jehovah God, our hearts will only find rest when we are in you. Give us the right attitude, Father, that in our luck we will not lose it. Give us the right attitude, Father, that in our pain and in our suffering, we will not forget that you're good to us. But also, Jehovah God, I pray, Give us the right attitude, Lord. Help us to develop the right attitude. The Lord, when we have it, when we have the abundance, when things are working, there's still one thing that is important and critical for us to have in our lives, and that is to have a relationship with you, and that is to run after you, and that is to know you, and that is to walk in your ways. Jehovah God, help us not to envy, help us not to be bitter, Help us, God, not to be angry. Help us, God, not to be envious. But, Lord, bring us to the point that you brought Asaph out of confessing that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. for listening. We hope this message has blessed you. If this ministry has impacted your life, you can help us reach others by partnering with us. You can give through our website iccimara.org slash give. Be sure to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Have a great week.